Thanks for tuning in to this third lecture in this ongoing series about pneumonia. While over a hundred microbes can cause pneumonia, it is challenging to cover them all. There are some organisms that are not only particularly unique, but also particularly common, and we'll try to cover those. Legionella is one of those organisms. Legionella pneumophilia, also known as Legionnaire's disease, is an organism that you see more than you think you do. It's one of the most common causes of bacterial community-acquired pneumonia. Depending on the source you read, it seems that about 5 to 10% of your pneumonia patients have Legionella. Air conditioners were the culprit in the outbreak of Legionnaire's disease in Philadelphia in 1976. There once was a police commissioner from Philadelphia named Frank Rizzo who said, The streets are safe in Philadelphia. It's only the people that make them unsafe. And back in 1976, there was another unsafe place to be in Philadelphia, and it wasn't the streets. A large outbreak of pneumonia occurred among folks attending a convention of the American Legion at the Bellevue Stratford Hotel in Philadelphia. Of the 182 reported cases of Legionella pneumonia that were acquired during the convention, 29 of those patients died. That's about 15% of those who got pneumonia at the convention who died. And indeed, it has been subsequently shown that untreated Legionella pneumonia has a mortality of about 15 to 30%. And for those of you who are not part of the club, the American Legion was chartered by Congress in 1919 as a patriotic veterans organization. Well, anyway, they traced the origin of the outbreak, and when they figured out the bacteria causing the pneumonia, they named it Legionella. Since the time of that outbreak, people often think air conditioners are the major cause of spreading the bacteria, but while air conditioners are indeed a risk factor, it is actually warm water that is a bigger risk factor. High water temperatures, such as in hot tubs, make it hard to maintain the chemical disinfectant levels needed to kill germs like Legionella, or Pseudomonas for that matter. If you get water super hot, like above 158 degrees Fahrenheit, it can kill Legionella, but most warm and hot water below that temperature will only help it thrive. A little scary in the sense we all know that water is ubiquitous, and as the columnist Dave Barry once pointed out, the four building blocks of the universe are fire, water, gravel, and vinyl. I'm not sure what his resources were for coming to that conclusion, but anyway, Legionella is mostly spread via aspiration of water from contaminated hot water distribution systems more than from air conditioning systems. All kinds of water distribution systems in large buildings, such as hospitals and other workplaces, can become contaminated with Legionella. Other habitats, including whirlpool spas, hot springs, decorative fountains, mist machines, including those that keep vegetables crisp in grocery stores, they can carry bacteria. It certainly can be a hospital-acquired disease because hospitals treat Legionella and the organism can get into the water supply. Legionella really has the potential to affect a broad demographic range of the general population. 
There was an interesting article in the journal called Chest back in 2000 that was titled The Radiologic Manifestations of Legionnaire's Disease. In spite of appropriate antimicrobial therapy and clinical improvement, worsening of the infiltrates was found in more than half of the patients within the first week. The reason I mention this study is it brings home an important take-home point in certain pneumonias like Legionella, the chest x-ray does not need to be followed in the first few weeks to look for signs of improvement. The imaging can actually worsen, and if the patient is getting better, there is not an indication to change antibiotics based on a worsening chest x-ray. Now, most of the time, you won't know that your patient has Legionella because if you are following treatment guidelines, you will cover community-acquired pneumonia adequately with a macrolide or an anti-pneumococcal quinolin like Levaquin, and never know that the patient had Legionella. Now, there is a urinary antigen test for one of the serogroups of Legionella. As I said, you usually treat Legionella just fine following the community-acquired guidelines without spending extra money on testing. But if you are suddenly seeing an unusual amount of pneumonia on your surface, testing some patients for Legionella can detect an unrecognized endemic. Legionella is not directly transmitted person to person, so it's not usually critical as a microbial like TB would be to know that a specific cause of the pneumonia is Legionella. But again, if you can discover an outbreak, you can save others from acquiring it if the water source is then found. It also may be worth testing your critically ill pneumonia patients for Legionella urinary antigen. And that's because Legionella can cause pretty severe disease. Okay, let's change bacteria here to discuss another unique cause of pneumonia, and that's Pseudomonas. There was a boxer named Rocky Graziano who once said, I quit school in the sixth grade because of pneumonia. Not because I had it, but because I couldn't spell it. Well, kids, it could be worse. We could make you learn to spell Pseudomonas, which I bet half of doctors can't spell correctly, including me. Pseudomonas originosa, like Legionella, is a gram-negative bacteria that has another characteristic it shares with Legionella, which is they both like to live in water. Trying to clean those bacteria away with water is like trying to give a fish a bath. Pseudomonas likes hot tubs, which is why it causes hot tub folliculitis. It sometimes even causes urinary tract infections after taking a whirlpool bath. It lives in lakes, it lives in rivers, it can live in tap water, sinks, respiratory equipment, and even contaminate mouth swabs. There are documented cases of bad eye infections when the irrigation solution was contaminated with Pseudomonas. It is also a well-known cause of eye infections in extended wear contact lens users. In December of 2011, a hospital was trying to figure out the source of increased Pseudomonas respiratory tract infections and realized it was in the ultrasound gel used for transesophageal echocardiography. Contaminated bronchoscopes have been linked to outbreaks. I think you're getting the point. Pseudomonas is as ubiquitous as cell phones. In fact, it may even live on your cell phone right now. There are lots of kinds of Pseudomonas, 
Some varieties infect patients, some infect animals, but when I mention Pseudomonas in this lecture, I am specifically referring to Pseudomonas aeruginosa. Pseudomonas aeruginosa has limited nutritional requirements. It can grow in distilled water, which is proof of its minimal nutritional needs. By thriving, despite paltry sustenance, they are like the direct opposite of comedian Louis C.K., who explained, I don't stop eating when I'm full. The meal isn't over when I'm full. It's over when I hate myself. And I too often relate to that quote. But anyway, since Pseudomonas survives so well on so many surfaces and environments, just because you culture it doesn't mean it is an infection. We don't treat every culture because some growths are colonization, not infection. Once again, we must be clinicians and then decide if clinical signs of pneumonia exist. Along those lines, you probably do not want to reculture after the patient clinically recovers because they may still grow pseudomonas despite not having an active infection. What are the patient populations that are susceptible to pseudomonas pneumonias? When it comes to ventilator-associated pneumonia, pseudomonas is indeed a common cause. It is a common cause of severe hospital-acquired pneumonia and in certain populations, it's actually a common cause of community-acquired pneumonia. When host defense mechanisms are compromised, it particularly makes you susceptible to pseudomonas infections. It's an opportunistic pathogen that rarely causes disease in healthy persons. Pneumonia with this organism usually happens in patients with immunosuppression and chronic lung disease. Patients taking glucocorticoids, such as COPD patients, have increased risk of acquiring pseudomonas. And likewise, immunosuppression from other causes, such as HIV or causes of neutropenia, are additional risk factors. Structural lung abnormalities are a huge risk factor for pseudomonas, particularly bronchiectasis in patients with cystic fibrosis. Being admitted to a ward or an ICU with a high incidence of pseudomonas is a big risk factor for picking up this frequent cause of hospital-acquired infections. It also turns out that not all pseudomonas originosa varieties are alike. Some varieties of pseudomonas are more virulent than other varieties. Those expressing type 3 toxin secretion can be more invasive by harming the integrity of epithelial cells in the respiratory tract. Obviously, other traits such as different resistant patterns are a huge factor as well. Now, when it comes to Pseudomonas aeruginosa, there are controversies and some principles in treating this disease. First off, I would like to remind the listener that I do not treat children. There are different considerations one must take into account when thinking about toxicities of antibiotics like fluoroquinolones in children. One of the problems with pseudomonas is it not only has developed resistance to lots of antibiotics, it can acquire resistance during a therapy with the antibiotic that was initially working. Thus, your local antibiograms are a good guide, but not totally reliable. Antimicrobial resistance has not only emerged, 
it seems to be increasing. You know, people are a collection of molecules that have attained a consciousness. And if part of that consciousness becomes an understanding that our fates as beings are tied together, that what we do as a group of people, such as prescribe antibiotics when they are not indicated, it will come back to affect resistance patterns when you and your family get sick. Yet somehow that has not totally sunk in because we too often only see ourselves as individuals with personal desires we consider to be more important than the connections that tie us together. But we are in desperate need of an enlightened medical community that not only understands, but acts on the knowledge that writing a prescription to make someone happy with your practice so they will remain a repeat paying customer when they have a bad cold is truly malpractice. Now with Pseudomonas, we are very limited in our antibiotic choice. Sometimes we feel lucky. We at least have some toxic drugs that have organ damaging consequences to still try in some of these patients. It is our collective actions as a society that pushed us more rapidly to this place of ever-increasing resistance. And it is not just the medical community that is responsible. The agricultural sector uses millions of pounds of antibiotics every year to increase the size of animals for meat production. So as a society, we have some big challenges to tackle. I mean, I guess you can turn it into a positive, like the comedian Buddy Winston who explained, Say what you want about healthcare in America, but where else in the world can you get free antibiotics by just drinking the milk or eating the chicken? Again, I remind us of these points because Pseudomonas is becoming one of those bacteria we are running out of choices for. Pan resistance is becoming an increasing reality. Now let's start talking about some of the principles and controversies in treatment. Many recommend starting with two anti-pseudomonal antibiotics and then de-escalating to monotherapy. Once you have a sensitivity, de-escalating seems reasonable, but no single antibiotic covers 100% of pseudomonas isolates. Therefore, monotherapy is not recommended for empiric therapy. What about when you have sensitivities back? Is there any benefit to still using two antibiotics with pseudomonas instead of one. Will two antibiotics kill the bacteria better? Well, some try to answer that in August of 2007 in an article in the journal called Critical Care Medicine, and the article is titled Optimal Management Therapy for Pseudomonas Originosa Ventilator-Associated Pneumonia. It was an observational multicenter study comparing monotherapy with combination antibiotic therapy. They were wondering if de-escalation to a single antibiotic would increase mortality, length of stay, or the development of resistance. And it didn't. One antibiotic was fine once you had the sensitivities showing it would be an effective agent. And quoting the conclusion of the study, they said, initial use of combination therapy significantly reduces the likelihood of inappropriate therapy which is associated with higher risk of death. However, administration of only one effective antimicrobial or combination therapy provides similar outcomes, suggesting that switching to monotherapy 
once the susceptibility is documented, is feasible and safe. And that's the end of the quote. So let's move on. What are the empiric regimens recommended currently by the Infectious Disease Society of America? There are different possible regimens. The simplest empiric regimen is combining an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam with an anti-pseudomonal quinolone. Therefore, combining zosin or levoquin has you covered. Likewise, meropenem and levoquin would also do the trick. And I'm sorry that I am sometimes not using the generic names for these antibiotics. Zosin is piperacillin tazobactam. Levoquin, obviously, is levofloxacin. All right, another option is that you can give an aminoglycoside with either an anti-pseudomonal quinolone or you can give an aminoglycoside with an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam. And then you can also start getting into these triple regimens such as an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam plus an aminoglycoside plus azithromycin. And when deciding which of these regimens to use, you will take into account allergies you want to also think about recent antibiotic use, which is a risk factor for actually getting pseudomonas. Meaning, if the patient was given a course of levoquin three weeks ago, picking a regimen with levoquin just wouldn't make sense. Now, which beta-lactams potentially cover pseudomonas? These options are known as the anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams, and they are ceftazidime, Cefepime, piperacillin tazobactam, which it says zosin, imipenem, meropenem, and doropenem. However, we don't suggest using doropenem. It has fallen out of favor for treating pneumonia. When a patient has a penicillin allergy, we can substitute as trianam for that beta-lactam. Um, it is an IV beta-lactam with anti-pseudomonal activity, there are some similarity side chains of ceftazidime and astreonam. So if the allergy is severe with ceftazidime, astreonam potentially can cause some problems as well. But overall, there's little cross-reactivity between the monobactam, astreonam, and penicillin-allergic patients. And likewise, while we are talking about that, when it comes to the carbapenems such as imipenem and the penicillins, Skin tests show cross-reactivity to be about 1%. Therefore, most consider carbapenems to be safe for those with a penicillin allergy. And now some trivia time. What is the only class of antibiotics with anti-pseudomonal activity that you can give orally? And the answer is fluoroquinolones, specifically ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin. I did already mention that de-escalation to a single agent is reasonable. However, while aminoglycosides are reasonable to use alone for UTIs with pseudomonas, it turns out aminoglycosides are not a good option for single agent coverage for lower respiratory tract infections. It has something to do with aminoglycosides not working well in acidic environments. Now when things get desperate, and the isolate shows resistance to all the usual choices, you may have to resort to polymixin class of antibiotics and give a drug named colistin, which is not great for the patient, but better than dying of pseudomonas. And the reason this old drug did fall out of favor is it carries a very significant nephrotoxicity risk.
Now, what about aerosolized antibiotics? For most patient populations, they are best controversial, the exception being patients with cystic fibrosis, who again are at higher risk for pseudomonas, and there appears to be a role for aerosolized aminoglycosides and possibly ceftazidime. Efficacy in regards to clinical improvement appears to be beneficial for cystic fibrosis patients. Other antibiotics like astreonam can also be aerosolized. For most populations, aerosolized antibiotics are not first line. It's like P.J. O'Rourke who once said something along the lines that politics are a lousy way to get things done. Politics are, like God's infinite mercy, a last resort. And currently, aerosolized antibiotics are also seeming to fall into that last resort category, though that may change as different antibiotics become available in the future. Well, I hope you learned something about Pseudomonas and Legionella. This is a big topic when we talk about pneumonia, and so we'll be back with the next lecture to further explore this huge topic of lower respiratory tract infections. You have been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with your host, Dr. Gil Parat.